Good afternoon. A drone attack on the Kremlin. We hear from a recent visitor to Moscow and Donbass. Also, a critic of Moscow speaks from the left. 53 years since the Kent State Massacre, when protesters were shot down by National Guard troops. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with The Torch on the Progressive Radio Network. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, told reporters on Thursday his country was not involved in a drone attack last week on the Kremlin, Russia's seat of government. We don't attack Putin or Moscow. We fight on, on our territory. We are defending our villages and cities. We don't have, you know, enough weapons for this. United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken also denied any U.S. involvement in the attack. I would take anything coming out of the Kremlin with a very large shaker of salt. So let's see. Uh, we'll see what, uh, what, what the facts are. Um, and it's, it's really hard to comment or speculate uh, on this without really, uh, really knowing what the facts are. More generally, uh, as I've said and as we've said, when it comes to Ukraine, which is under daily assault, uh, and not just its incredibly courageous military forces, but its citizens, its men, women, and children being assaulted on a daily basis by this Russian aggression, being bombed out of their homes, their apartments, and their streets, children killed, families torn apart. Well, we leave it to Ukraine to decide how it's going to defend itself and how it's going to try to get back the territory that's been seized from it illegally by Russia over the past 14 months. And going back to 2014, uh, back to then. So to, to clarify, if Ukraine decided on its own to strike back in Russian territory, the United States would not criticize them. Again, these are decisions for Ukraine to make about how it's going to defend itself, how it's going to get uh, its territory back, how it's going to restore its territorial integrity uh, and its sovereignty. But Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov says the denials are laughable, claiming Kyiv chooses the means and targets for its strikes exactly as it is instructed by Washington. Video showed several flashes of orange light above the iconic dome of the complex of buildings located in Moscow. There was no reported damage and Russia's President Vladimir Putin was not in the building. United States National Security spokesperson John Kirby refuted Peskov's statement. The United States was not involved in this incident in any way, contrary to Mr. Peskov's lies. That's what they are, just lies. Over the past few days, we've also seen Russia continue to launch dozens of missiles and armed drones into Ukraine, striking civilian homes and killing innocent Ukrainians, including shoppers at a supermarket. Russia is continuing to wage a brutal war against the Ukrainian people, and we're committed to continuing to support Ukraine as they defend their country from that aggression, including, as you just saw this week, uh, with yet another package of security assistance, uh, drawdown authority for the president. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. The attacks come as the world is waiting for Ukraine to launch an expected spring offensive to regain Russian-held territory in the east of the country and the Crimean Peninsula to the south. In related news, at a press conference in Jerusalem, a Russian reporter asked House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy if his statements critical of the U.S. role in the war means the GOP will support a drawdown. McCarthy was adamant. Vyacheslav uh, Tartakovsky, RIA Novosti, Russia. Uh, we know that uh, you don't support uh, the current unlimited and uh, uncontrolled uh, supplies of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So can you comment, is it possible if in the near future uh, the U.S. policy regarding sending weaponry to Ukraine will change? 
Okay, I'm not sure. The, the, the sound here is not good. Did he say, I don't support aid to Ukraine? No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. And we will continue to support because the rest of the world sees it just as it is. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. The question apparently hit home. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell felt moved to clarify the Republicans' position on the war in Ukraine. There was a remarkable exchange yesterday when a Russian reporter tried to put false words in Speaker McCarthy's mouth about alleged Republican opposition to helping Ukraine defeat Russian aggression. Well, the Speaker put him in his place and shut him down. He reminded everyone of his ongoing support of aid to Ukraine and of Republicans' commitment to help our friends win. Republicans are the party of American strength at home and abroad. Equipping Ukraine to defend itself is a direct investment in America's own national security, our national security. As brave Ukrainians degrade the Russian military on the front lines, a major threat to Western security and economic prosperity gets weaker. Our own defense capabilities are actually getting stronger. A large part of the security assistance appropriated for Ukraine actually funds the production of new cutting-edge capabilities for the U.S. military and supports good-paying jobs for skilled American workers right here at home. Back in the United States, there was political reaction. Presidential candidate John F. Kennedy Jr. has long criticized United States military support for Ukraine. They killed 14,000 Russians and dumped us, the Ukrainian government. If Mexico did that to expatriate Americans, we'd invade in a second. So, you know, I think we have to we have to put ourselves in the shoes of our opponents. They killed 14,000 Russians and dumped us, the Ukrainian. Kennedy, whose father was assassinated in 1968 while running for president, is in the midst of his own campaign. He tweeted a response to the drone attack. He says the United States should stop its deranged attempts to stoke tensions around Ukraine, adding his uncle, President John Kennedy, warned against ever again forcing Russia to choose between national humiliation and nuclear war. Kennedy went on, we should heed his advice. Meanwhile, longtime programmer for community radio station WBAI, Randy Credico, just returned from a three-week journey to Russia and the Donbass. He was at a rally at the studios of cable news network MSNBC in Midtown Manhattan, protesting on behalf of jailed WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Credico says Russia is doing just fine, but he warns nuclear conflict is possible before Russia would withdraw. The country's beautiful, uh, the city is beautiful, not so much this morning in the Kremlin after that drone attack, but that's where I was. I was walking through the Kremlin just two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, to go see John Reed's tomb and the great big Bill Haywood all over General Zhukov, all, I went everywhere in that Red Square, and then I went all over the city. Nobody was chaperoning me. It was just on fire in a good way. It was so busy. Everything was... Every 
place was busy. I've never seen so much traffic. It's like the, the 101 or the 405 in L.A. There's so many cars out there, and the trucks are going in and out, and they're building a lot. So I was very impressed in Moscow the 12 days I was there. The six days I was in Donbass was a lot rockier and scarier and uh, over my head. The Donbass is what they call Eastern Ukraine, or Russians call the DPR. Causing trouble here. You just crossed the yeah. uh, border not recognized by your own government. Right, 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 right. I know I did. And I heard Tony Blinken say today, don't, reporters, don't go to Russia because they don't want the kind of stuff that I put out there by mainstream media, you know? So we've heard America supports Ukraine, little Ukraine being invaded by big Russia. So you got that side presented right here every single day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They don't have a different view, and so I got to get it from the Russians' view. I was in an area, Donetsk and Mirapol, and 100% of the people I spoke to on my own don't want to be part of that Ukrainian, whatever it is, idea called Ukraine. Yeah. If it, it really was never a Ukraine until 1920, uh, 22 or whatever. So there's a lot of misperceptions. We're gaslit with disinformation all day long. Every two minutes, Newsweek or Business Insider sending out a story, one's crazier than the next, that uh, Putin is on the verge so of suicide. You're here in front of NBC, the Rainbow Room observation deck. I haven't been here since I was a kid. We used to go and uh, isn't NBC one of these places that are... It was when John Chancellor was here and he called Israel a savage nation. Some of the uh, reporters back then, they did commentary, real commentary. Those days are gone. The good people they had at NBC, I don't know if they were good or bad, but they were much better than, more balanced than what this place is. All it is is an infomercial for war and uh, mass surveillance. We're here for a specific purpose. For Julian Assange, because they've been bad on Julian Assange. We had to pick a place that was easy for people to get to. Get Rockefeller Center, get all the subways near here. It could have been the New York Times, but that's way to go over there on the west side. How are people on the east side going to get there? Uh, we could have picked CNN, but that was not conducive in the atmosphere where people are walking around. It was just not a good spot. This is the Rainbow Room. This is a famous place in yeah. Rockefeller Center. This uh, got the blood stained, covered with blood from the Ludlow Massacre in 1914, covered with blood, Operation Gladio, that the Rockefellers and the Mellons financed. Well, why did you come here then? Because we wanted to protest, because they're shitty on Assange. Why is that? How do they do it? Because they got Joy, just watch it. Joy Ann Reed, that guy in the morning, morning, Joe and his, whatever her name is, anybody else on that show, they're all establishment people. They've been really bad on Assange. They're faux journalists. They're not journalists. This is not, these are not journalists. These are, you get more news on the dating game than you do in this joint. What was your experiences of the war zone as a reporter reporting back to us? What's it look like to you? Maripol looked like Dresden, but they're rebuilding. Putin was there before I was there visiting one of the apartment buildings. You have all these Central Asian Russians that are there from the Caucasus building these wonderful apartment buildings. Three, three months they have like a hundred uh, unit uh, apartment buildings. They're white and they're beautiful and they... You could have been there when this uh, much vaunted offensive by Ukraine happened. You could have yeah. been caught in a war zone. I could have been. Did you bring your puppy with you? No. Is I did see a lot of dogs in the park there. They are rebuilding Mirapol. The place is still littered with mines. They tell you, do not walk on the grass anywhere. People lose their legs walking on grass. And of course, I did the first day I was there. The van was over there, the, the armored vehicle. I had to walk across. 
Who is the most important person you met there as far as I met a lot of, I can't tell you who I met. I met a lot of people that I don't want to get into it. I don't want it to be around. And what did they say? What was their message to America, to an American? America. They must have had a stop, message. Stop, 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 stop escalating the war. Call up Zelensky and tell him it's over. And it will be over. But it's Are getting too late. They're not, they're not, the Russians aren't giving up. It's going to go nuclear if there's any kind of movement into Russia. It will go nuclear. No. They're not going to trade Donbass for Crimea. They're not. They're keeping both of them. They're, they're not going back. They've lost too much. That's the Minsk Accord. They keep Crimea and they keep Donbass and the other A blast or A whatever. You took it's a 27-hour trip, train Tw trip. 25. What was that like? Just, I'm sorry to keep you here. It's so interesting. Well, listen. It's a, it's a five-hour conversation, 25-hour trip. I was in with a French guy. It's a big, not a big, it's like bigger than a toll booth. It's about from here to there. There were two beds that came out and a dining room table. And so it was like that. And then you go upstairs on that trip every three hours to the restaurant and get another bottle of vodka because that was the only way I could get through this. It's impossible to stay sober on this trip. I thought you were a sober I was, but I started drinking again. You can't find Stoli in New York, though. It's always made in uh, Utah, you know what I mean? <laughs> or Wisconsin or someplace. Any last message about your show? Tell us about your show on WBAI. Every Friday at 3 p.m., live on the fly. Not this week, not tomorrow. It's a tribute to Harry Belafonte. But not everybody in the American left is convinced Russia is correct in pursuing the bloody war, where untold thousands have already died and cities lie in ruins. Radical attorney Stanley Cohen has represented the Weather Underground, a U.S.-based radical group accused of political bombings and Palestinian leaders fighting Israel. Cohen says the United States would never use a primitive weapon like a drone to make a point against Russia. The notion that a state that designed napalm and supports phosphorus and cluster bombs against civilians in Gaza is going to weigh in, support, or directly be involved, or even smile at the use of a 7-Eleven drone to break a flag is just inane. It's silly. It's ridiculous. This counting angels on the head of a pin has become a, a talisman among people with regard to what's going on. There are certain facts on the ground in not just Ukraine, but in Russia for decades regarding dissent, regarding political opponents, regarding journalists, regarding the will to struggle, which are very clear. We don't have to begin to craft the rumor mill to force conclusions that support whatever our political premise is, and that's what it is. I have no clue. I have no idea, and I'm not going to spend any time trying to figure out who lit a firecracker on a flagpole in the Kremlin as whether it be a message or an inane attempt to go after Putin, who's never there. So it's just silly. The Weather Underground beat everybody to it. They had a couple of firecrackers go off in the U.S. Capitol, I think, back in the well, 70s. Well, I actually represented one of the defendants, Alan Berkman, along with Lynn Stewart, that was accused of the Capitol bombing. There's reality on the ground, there's struggle, there's resistance, and there's rhetoric. It's a shame that the Tucker Carlson wasn't here right now, still on Fox, because tonight he'd be blaming it on LGBTQ community members as a distraction or a deflection from the righteous battle against them or people of color or women. It's nonsense. Watching people desperately reach out while entire cities are being laid to ruin, while tens of thousands are, are injured or lose their lives in their own homes, while there are millions in flight, not what brought me up and it's not what's going to put me to bed. I have litigated against Putin. I've lit litigated against FSB in Interpol and elsewhere. What amazes me is the ability of self-professed revolutionaries and leftists and anti-imperialists to somehow separate the reality of the ground domestically under Putin 
from the reality of what's going on in the Ukraine. The record is there. People deny it. When Carlson was fired by other beasts the other day, watching self-professed leftists making excuses for why he had to remain and why he was this powerful, important voice and denying a track record of hate, of racism, of misogyny, of Islamophobia, of xenophobia, paints a desperate picture for people that are trying to build coalitions and to break bread with some of the fiends in this country. How do you account for this Bengali-like appeal of Putin? There are lots of people that think it's enough to say the enemy of my enemy is my friend and ally. If you're interested in confronting and challenging the industrial military complex in the United States, confront it, challenge it, take it on, get arrested, organize, fight it, shut it down, as they're doing uh, with Zionist programs and supporting Israel in the UK right now. But this notion that I'm going to preach from afar or or write articles or, or do podcasts that support someone who is a domestic beast, someone who has a history of war crimes for 20 years, and somehow that's going to expose NATO, weaken NATO, or weaken and expose the United States is infantile. It's childish. While there is just a a horrific, horrific actions of of war crimes and genocides in the ground right now. One of the things that people have to begin looking at is is their own politics. Um, This this notion that I could just spew rhetoric and somehow become a freedom fighter is childish. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, she doesn't agree with you, but she shares some of the sentiments that you're expressing and is saying that it's time to negotiate a peaceful settlement and to try, and and that might, I know a lot of people who are pro-Ukraine and and Randy, who's pro-Russia, they're outraged at the idea of trading Donbass for Crimea to end the war. Well, my message to her is my message to other Western and and white women and men. Um, That's up to Ukrainian people. That's not for us to dictate. Uh, the notion that we are going to blackmail or hold over the heads our own individual political drive and aspirations and to force them to make decisions is not only pejorative and dismissive, but it's so totally at odds with self-determination that the left that I grew up in has always supported. It is up to the people on the ground in Ukraine. And the notion that somehow Zelensky is holding hostage 40 million people uh, whose cities have been destroyed with millions of Ukrainians in flight with critical injuries with all sorts of problems is silly and inane. The nature and extent of resistance on the ground in Palestine is up to Palestinians. People on the outside can support that effort in any way that they can, and it holds true for what's going on in the region and with Ukraine right now. Radical attorney Stanley Cohen. In related news, Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov said in a TV interview on Friday, we are working on preventing a fall of our relations with the U.S. into the abyss of an open armed conflict, adding, we are already on the verge of this abyss. He says there's no real diplomacy between the two rival nations. And in news from the border, next week on May 11th, COVID-19 restrictions preventing tens of thousands of migrants from entering the United States will end. Even with the restrictions, record numbers have been crossing the 2,000-mile-long southern border with Mexico. In preparation for the expected surge of migrants, U.S. and Mexican officials have agreed on new immigration policies. Under a five-point agreement, Mexico will continue to accept migrants from Venezuela, Haiti, Cuba, and Nicaragua who are turned away at the border, and up to 100,000 individuals from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador who have family in the U.S. will be eligible to live and work there. Today, Pentagon spokesperson General Pat Ryder said some U.S. troops will be sent to help. As a general matter, as a federal judge, uh, I have always believed that uh, the judiciary uh, should follow and be held to the highest ethical standards. That continues to be my belief. 
White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre downplayed any similarity between Biden's immigration management and Trump's use of troops during his term. DOD personnel have been supporting CBP at the border for almost two decades now, she said, so this is a common practice. In national news, the Washington Post reported on Thursday the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas reportedly received nearly $100,000 in secret payments orchestrated by the leader of the Conservative Federalist Society, helped by former Donald Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway. Jenny Thomas, a prominent far-right-wing activist, got the cash from Leonard Leo, a guru to those trying to make the court more conservative. At the same time, a nonprofit headed by Leo had filed briefs to the same court where her husband sits. Attorney General Merrick Garland tells reporters he can't comment directly on the case, but... As a general matter, as a federal judge, uh, I have always believed that uh, the judiciary uh, should follow and be held to the highest ethical standards. That continues to be my belief. In more national news, it was 53 years ago last week Ohio National Guard troops confronted anti-war protesters at Kent State University, opened fire on the unarmed students, killing four and wounding nine others. The four killed were 19-year-old Allison Krauss and 20-year-olds Jeffrey Miller, Sandra Scheuer, and William Schroeder. They were part of 300 students who came to protest the April 30th announcement by President Richard Nixon. The Pentagon was expanding the Vietnam War with an invasion of Cambodia. Tonight, American and South Vietnamese units will attack the headquarters for the entire communist military operation in South Vietnam. This key control center has been occupied by the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong for five years in blatant violation of Cambodia's neutrality. This is not an invasion of Cambodia. The areas in which these attacks will be launched are completely occupied and controlled by North Vietnamese forces. Our purpose is not to occupy the areas. Once enemy forces are driven out of these sanctuaries and once their military supplies are destroyed, we will withdraw. Artist Mike Alowitz is based in New London, Connecticut, but in 1970 he was deeply involved in the anti-war movement. Well, I was a student at Kent State. I was a student leader. I was uh, chairman of the Student Mobilization Committee Against the War, which was the the largest anti-war group on campus. And I was a socialist activist. Um, And I was, so I was active before the shootings took place. Um, After the shootings took place, uh, I was part of a, a the Committee of Kent State Massacre Witnesses, which we traveled around the country. At that time, you had to go somewhere to give an, a report on something. Uh, you know, this was many years pre-computers. And uh, we were basically involved in trying to extend the national student strike that began uh, with the invasion of Cambodia and the shootings at Kent. Uh, up to that time, it was the largest political demonstration of its kind that had ever ever happened in the United States. Uh, over 400 uh, universities and colleges were were occupied. Um, it was it was an amazing event that had a profound effect on people of my generation. What led up to Kent State and remind people of the history? The war in Vietnam which was uh, a holocaust for the people of Southeast Asia and for the many thousands of U.S. and uh, people of my generation who were drafted and forced to fight. 
in Southeast Asia. Over the many years of the war, the hatred of it grew. People were opposed to the war. Those of us involved in the anti-war movement were reaching out to the army and to workers, unions, whatever, and along with building a base on campus to build a movement that would end the war. We were being very successful in doing that. For the first time in history, there was a massive anti-war movement involving millions of people organized against the war. People hated the war. So the hatred of the war grew. Then Nixon was elected president because he said he had a secret plan to end the war. What he did on April 30th of 1970, he went on TV and announced the invasion of Cambodia, a sovereign nation and a dramatic extension of the war. Demonstrations broke out all over the country. At Kent, there were a series of events and protests that led up to the massacre on May 4th. Nixon called the students bums. James Rhodes, the governor of Ohio, echoed that kind of thing, a whipping up a vitriolic kind of hysteria against student protesters. That's what laid the basis for the shootings on May 4th. The ruling class, government and its arrogance, felt that if they repressed the movement, people would be afraid and go away. But of course, the opposite happened. The shootings were a spark that led to even more massive demonstrations than we'd ever had before and went deep into the army, the working class. It really was a turning point in the anti-war movement. Many hundreds of campuses were protesting. Why did a shooting happen at Kent State? We don't know these things. We know that roads there was exchanges with the White House. A lot of these kind of events, um, and this has been something that's been an issue at Kent because there are a lot of people who try to say, well, it was the guardsmen. Of course, guardsmen pulled the trigger, but really the decision to do something like this does not happen at the local level. It certainly doesn't happen without people like the local authorities, the governor, whatever, having exchanges with national authorities. And we know there were phone calls back and forth between Rhodes and the White House. They made a decision to provide a framework for this to occur. It was pretty much a foregone conclusion. And the reason I say that is because I'd been involved in a lot of demonstrations. And the demonstration on May 4th, 1970, was a peaceful gathering. It's a warm spring day. The guardsmen had been called in to occupy the campus on specious events. Ohio State had a riot because their football team had won, and they did a lot of damage there, much more than anything that happened at Kent State. Yeah. What they did at Kent was they burned down the ROTC building, which was a dilapidated structure that was basically like a big chicken coop. And then they used that as an excuse. That day, it was very clear this was unprovoked. They said they were throwing gravel and pebbles at the National Guard. Yeah, it was nothing compared. Your example is very good. Football riots that take place on hundreds of campuses are much more severe than what, what happened at Kent. What they wanted to do was to make the movement go away. And they thought that if, if they took these kind of actions, it would happen. This same kind of thing is going on today. I would, for example, the... Uh, Events that are going on in Atlanta, where there's the movement to stop Cop City. 
the cops went in and they just shot up this kid who was one of the forest defenders. Tortuguita. Yeah, and was obviously unprovoked. And then they were having a, a concert and they went in and they arrested people who were attending on terrorism charges. This kind of thing, in my opinion, was not a decision of some people in Atlanta. It was clearly something that was decided upon by people on a much higher pay grade, so to speak. They consult on these things before they do them. They thought that if they do this, if they attack the movement in Atlanta, the people who are mobilizing against the militarization of the police, that if they do this, people will get scared and that'll be the end of the movement. Let's go to that day, May 4th, and the, the story that there was a police infiltrator who was armed, an informant within the uh, provocateur, within the demonstrators who was armed and was seen with a gun and with talking to the National Guard's people during this. Is, is there anything to that story? Oh, yes. There's photographic evidence, and it's all been documented in different legal ways. Guy's name was Terry Norman, and he was an FBI informant. And there are pictures of him handing a gun to a cop. Uh, he had a handgun on that day. Now, there's different speculation about whether he was being a provocateur, whether he had fired shots. The real problem is that he has never had to account for himself. Here's an armed FBI agent at a time when all this stuff about government spying and provocations, he never had to answer for any of this. Mm -hmm. And the school and the state authorities and the national government have done their best to suppress the real history of what happened there and to cover up the events of May 4th. There's no accountability, right? The person who's been heading up the official commemorations for the past few years is Stephanie Dane Smith, who was one of the top CIA officers that worked with Condoleezza Rice in instituting the torture campaigns in Iraq. That's who was organizing the commemorations, which have evolved largely into this kind of semi-militarist thing, where it's been depoliticized. They don't talk about the anti-war movement. It's like some abstract tragedy. What we have here is a misunderstanding, a failure to communicate. A car crash on the highway with some students. Some of the ex-radicals from SDS have been used and have built careers and accommodated themselves to this stuff. The actual events at Kent have been largely presented in a very fictional way. They don't talk about the mass anti-war movement. We had demonstrations of thousands of students on the campus before the shootings. There was all kinds of anti-war activity, the Student Mobilization Committee, the Kent Committee Against the War, and there were other groups. We've been written out of history. They don't mention it. Alison Krauss, was active. She was an anti-war protester. Sandy Scheuer participated in anti-war activities, yet they always say, that, oh, no, they were just victims. They weren't actually uh, people who had anti-war positions who felt very strongly about things. On the 50th anniversary, Bill Schroeder, who was in ROTC, but who was out there protesting, they tried to 
make it look like he was an ROTC guy, like he had some loyalty to the army or something. They've really tried to rewrite the history of this thing. And that's true about the anti-war movement in general. They've really tried to very consciously misrepresent the movement. All these myths about people spitting on soldiers. They put these movies out like the Rambo things. Sylvester Stallone says this stuff. It was the anti-war movement that was supporting the GIs. Our slogan was support the troops, bring them home. I was very involved in organizing GIs. After the shootings at Kent, I was in Texas. I near the military bases, and we were organizing, helping to organize GIs at Fort Hood and Bergstrom Air Force Base in San Antonio. It was the soldiers. This is another thing that's been written out of our history. It was rank-and-file soldiers. It was an organic movement within the Army, led mostly by black and Latino soldiers, who organized and ended the war by refusing to fight. Basically, the army began to collapse in Vietnam, and that's when they were forced to withdraw the troops. It was the determined resistance of the Vietnamese people, the heroic resistance to U.S. imperialism, and the soldiers who were won over to the anti-war movement, who very bravely began to resist the war. That's how it ended. It didn't end by some liberal politicians doing it. That's not how change happens. Change comes from working people. Artist Mike Alowitz is based in New London, Connecticut in 1970. He was involved in the movement against the Vietnam War. Attorney Stanley Cohen was a young anti-war activist in 1970. He says the protesters at Kent were doing their duty on behalf of the victims of United States imperialism. The takeaway from Kent State, the takeaway from our resistance against imperialism and aggression and occupation in Vietnam and Cambodia and Latin America, and you go right up the list, is that you always support the occupied, never the occupier. You always stand for righteous injustice, and that doesn't mean making excuses or rewriting what is going on or crafting denial. It means standing with those women and men and those children and those elderly whose lives are being destroyed, whose homes are being bombed, whose future is being denied. And not because it's some sort of abstract theoretical paradigm, but because it's reality. And what you must keep if you're going to be consistent with your principle is keep an eye. And when you begin to make excuses and to step two, three, four moves away to rationalize support for imperial design and for occupation, you need to take a look in the mirror because you are no longer with the occupied, but with the occupier. Kent State is an example of the blood, that song find the cost of freedom, right? I remember it as if yesterday. There were millions of people in Southeast Asia who paid the price for in-your-face, very clear violence and aggression and imperial design. And there were millions of Americans who paid a price in supporting and standing with them, whether it be by our arrests, our imprisonment, our becoming, quote, fugitives, our becoming expats, our lives being altered. Principle never requires leaps in logic. To be stereotyped as a certain type of person because of how you stood in those days, and you can't shake it to this very day. You never measure your success in life as a principled human being by those that that love you, but rather by those that hate you. It's a core of my life that has kept me going through very difficult times, and I've been targeted for violence and assassination and targeted by the government. And indeed went to prison for, quote, impeding the IRS. 
um, and was the target of a 15-year investigation for material support of terrorism that went nowhere, and that's when this popped up. You have to be consistent. The numbers of people that I have come across over the years who basically rewrote the call of their life, who in years ago were resisting wars of aggression and violence and were fighting for domestic justice and against imperial design, who walked away. And rather than simply acknowledging that they weren't up for the fight, they rather say they grew up and realized the mistakes of their youth, which is just disingenuous and dishonest. There are certain core values, certain core fights, certain core principles, whether it's acquired or whether you're fortunate enough to be born with them. You take with you until the time you become ashes unto the wind. And you don't cherry pick your fights. You don't make righteous calls to right away to excuse or to justify the imperial designs of anyone anywhere, from the United States to Russia to Israel. You are either fighting for justice or you're fighting against it. Attorney Stanley Cohen. In the following years, Garsmen were indicted for their roles in the shooting, but eventually civil rights charges were dismissed. Courts later ruled an order by the university banning protests was legal. Former Vice President Spiro Agnew admitted in a TV interview the guard had committed murder, but it was justified by over-response in the heat of anger. The sister of Allison Krauss, a student killed by one of the 67 or so bullets fired by Ohio National Guard troops, is Laurel Krauss. She discussed the shooting on May 4th on the podcast by George, hosted by George Clark. Krauss says the shooting was started by a known police agent. Named Terry Norman, I, I was not there. This is what I've been able to put together. He brought out his pistol. It was shiny, one of those nickel-plated pistols. And the sun, it was shiny. It was a beautiful day, big billowy clouds, gorgeous day. And the sun ricocheted off the, the pistol. He pulled it out, and the students attacked him and started uh, punching him. And the reason why I know this is because there was a recording. Someone on their dormitory ledge was recording the whole event. And this preceded the, the massacre. And they hear him getting the, you can hear the fist landing against Terry Norman. And Terry Norman manages to get away from the crowd, even though they're attacking him. And I've seen pictures of it, so I, I know it really did happen. And uh, he manages to get away, and he runs, and he shoots off his pistol, uh, you know, four times. Now, the guardsmen at this point are marching up the hill, and they're almost marching behind, beyond the peak because he had been waylaid when he the students attacked him. But he managed to get it off. He shoots his pistol. The guard then says, someone in the guard who's not wearing a gas mask, there's only a couple of them that aren't wearing gas masks, gives the command to fire, and he says, all right, guard, to begin the the fire, the, the, the command, and the command is not by any military standard whatsoever. All right, guard, you know, uh, command, you know, ready, set, and then the fire, you know, and so they, they turn all in unison because they were going up this hill away from the students. They all turn in unison. They all shoot in unison. So obviously that proves that there was a command. You can't all turn in unison and shoot in unison. That's critical. That. Yeah. They didn't have the same thought in their head as my mother says. So basically that's what happened with the Kent State. The first shot was Terry Norman, FBI informant, provocateur, and then the guardsmen then shoot. They shoot, they shot to kill. It was with M1s, with bullets that that explode upon impact, very illegal. My oh, sister yeah. had, had a 
portion of that every in every organ of her body. These assault rifles today, and I talk about this on my podcast all the time. You talk about being struck by bullets. It's like being struck struck by a pop can. I mean, that's that's what these uh, rifles are intended to do. They're not intended to wound or bring down assailants. That's not what they're intended to do. They're intended to blow you apart. And that's that's what they do. In fact, I want to bring this up for two miles. And so there were there were shot elements everywhere. Laurel Krauss is the younger sister of Alison Krauss, one of four students at Kent State protesting the U.S. invasion of Cambodia. On May 15th, National Guard troops opened fire at mostly black University of Mississippi, killing two students, both African-American. As the cash rolls into the United States Treasury, some veterans are questioning the gargantuan military budget. With its ancillary expenses, the total is well over a trillion dollars, 52% of every dollar paid in taxes. According to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, the budget is being driven by strategic competition with China and includes a 40% increase in the Pacific. This is a strategy-driven budget and one driven by the seriousness of our strategic competition with the People's Republic of China. At $842 billion, it is a 3.2% increase over fiscal year 23 enacted, and it is 13.4% higher than fiscal year 22 enacted. And this budget includes a 40% increase over last year's uh, budget for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. And it's an all-time high of $9.1 billion. And that will fund a stronger force posture, better defenses for Hawaii and Guam, and deeper cooperation with our allies and partners. Retired Marine Corps Captain and State Department Officer Matthew Ho is veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's with the Eisenhower Media Network. Dwight D. Eisenhower is the former five-star general and president who warned the nation against the military-industrial complex in 1961. Ho says it's all about the money. The grand theme of the Pentagon, the military-industrial complex, the way Congress is involved, it's all about getting rich. It's all about making money. It's all about everybody's profiting in their own way. The generals are getting more weapons. The politicians are getting more campaign contributions. And certainly the weapons manufacturers are getting more profits. Everybody is benefiting. And this is as old as, you know, the American Republic is. Dwight Eisenhower said in his farewell address in 1961 as a warning Americans of the military industrial complex that will lead to more war, more dangerous policy choices, a militarization of our foreign policies and domestic policies, but then just the pursuit of profits what comes at the expense of that and what's the offset, what's the trade-offs. And as you said, Paul, to start this, 52%, 52% of what people's income taxes go to goes to the Pentagon. And that's not including the veterans department. That's not including the State Department. That's not including the CIA or the NSA. It's not including the debt and interest payments on past military spending, roughly totals between 150 and $200 billion a year just to pay the interest charges on past military spending, past war spendings. When you add all that together, the current Pentagon budget of $885 billion balloons to about $1.3 or $1.4 trillion. Russia spent a small fraction on defense that the United States did. China, and even with all the ramped up war talk, a small fraction of what the United States spends right. on military. The comparison to other nations, 
And that is inevitably what you will hear members of both political parties, certainly the defense contractors, the pundits on television, the people on Wall Street saying to defend these gargantuan defense budgets is that we need them because of the threat from other nations. But then when you look and see at the size of these other nations' militaries, you realize just how outlandish those claims are. In the case of China, which spends the second most in the world on its military, it has four times as many people. It's a huge nation. Even if we were to cut our Pentagon budget in half, we would still be spending roughly $150 billion more a year than the Chinese spend. We spend 10 times as much as the Russians do on their military. You have to add up the next 10 nations combined to total what we spend on defense. We spend this much money, and what has the results been? The Korean War, the Vietnam War, where defense spending ballooned, caused monetary crisis for the United States. We were running out of gold trying to afford these wars that we were having in Korea and in Vietnam. Reagan said we got to have a 600-ship Navy. Now they have like a 200-ship Navy, and half of them are leaky. So you spent all this money on this military. What wars have you won? How has our security improved? Where is the stability that the American military has been promised to deliver? Where is the Pax Americana? What has it actually brought about in terms of numbers under reagan they were going for the 600 ship navy or whatever now there's less than 300 ships and we're spending more on the navy than we've ever spent in the history of this country the shipbuilding process in the u.s navy is completely dysfunctional we have whole classes of ships that have basically been canceled spent tens and tens of billions of dollars on these things and they built a few of them and these things could barely sail and i'm not being hyperbolic Isn't it all wars come down to, in the end, to grunts in the mud, knifing and shooting and strangling each other? That was like in in the wars in in Iraq and, uh, you know, certainly in the battles in Fallujah and Najaf. That's what it came down to. Americans, we had to go house to house to try and and hold territory. The true reality of warfare, that's what the Russians are experiencing now in Ukraine. You could have all the rockets and missiles and aircraft and satellites ships that you want but if you do not have people actually on the ground holding that ground a young man or woman with a rifle in their hands you are not going to be in control that's what we found in iraq and afghanistan to be true and that's why the united states fought differently its wars in libya and syria used proxy forces the united states does not have to take casualties trying to win these wars trying to control these wars trying to control that territory Uh, That is much more preferable and much more politically safe, uh, domestically politically safe to wage war that way than to wage war like Bush did in Iraq and then Obama tried with his escalation of the war in Afghanistan. Whatever people are spending on their income tax, just your income tax, about a quarter of that income tax money goes to Raytheon, Lockheed, Boeing, the weapons companies that the Congress appropriated for its budget. Last December, right before Christmas, the omnibus spending bill was $1.6 trillion. Of that, a quarter of that goes to the weapons companies. Retired Marine Corps Captain and State Department Officer Matthew Ho is veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan.
And that's the news for the week of May 5th, 2023. The news was produced by this reporter. You can hear the news every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, or at my website, pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.